This is Chris Damien, and you're listening to a recorded conversation I had with Danny Peterson. Danny is a licensed social worker, a friend of mine, and a former Catholic priest. In our conversation, we talk about his interest in joining the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, a concerning psychological assessment with Father Benedict Groeschel, his referral to the Catholic psychologist Philip Mango, where he received a form of conversion therapy, his experiences in the seminary for the Archdiocese of Newark, the role that Grinder played in his life before he left the priesthood, the prevalence of homosexuality among the clergy, and his life after leaving the priesthood and coming out as a gay man. This conversation will be divided into three parts. Please note that this conversation includes adult language and themes. And then in terms of just like how this goes, yeah, so I think that you know, obviously there are many ways in which like you tell your story and, you know, there will be many things that will be left unsaid or that, you know, probably people would want further explanation from, um, or you may want to like try to anticipate like every objection to everything that anyone might mm-hmm. say about what you're going to say. But, I, but I would say, you know, these, I generally try to have them just be more of a conversation and, and obviously, you know, this is the story of what you've experienced so far in so far as you understand it today. Mm-hmm. And the story that you might tell five years from now might be a different kind of story or might you might see things in different ways. And um, so, you know, I'm not expecting you to be the arbiter of the final truth of everything about okay. your life. But yeah, but, that makes sense. Yeah. So I think what we're doing is really just reflecting on your experiences with um, the understanding that you have of them today. That Perfect. That makes sense. Because, yeah, they are always changing, and I can't account for what's going to happen in a year. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and you know, we're on this constant process of self-discovery and understanding your vocation and trying to make sense of, like, the place that God has made for you in the world, and, and hopefully we're getting better at that every year. Sometimes we might be getting worse, but we just... Yeah. <laughs> the only place we can work from is the place we're in. Okay. So that's what we'll do. Uh, so, okay, so we're going to talk about, so your upbringing, discerning the priesthood, going to what's basically conversion therapy, mm-hmm. buying into all of these narratives about the possibility of sexual orientation change, going into the priesthood, leaving the priesthood, <laughs> ending up where you are today. But I, I think maybe a good starting point action, this is me slightly different from, from what okay. we talked about before, is I, I think that question is a good one. So you left the priesthood, people were super disappointed, upset, confused about it. And so those Catholics who did have those reactions, who were confused, frustrated, maybe angry, disappointed, you know, if you could tell them one thing what, what would you say to them right i would say that there was a wide range of emotions and reactions to me leaving and in the in the realm of the ones that were disappointed or frustrated or angry or withdrawn or confused i would say they kind of ended in two categories one was the i'm hurt or upset or sad and i still support you and then there was i'm hurt confused sad and i am choosing to now discontinue our communication as a friend to the first group of people they already know my full story to the second group of people my what i would say to them and what i would want to say to anyone who is confused about me leaving 
was that I found leaving the priesthood and leaving active ministry as a response to God's grace and faith and not a rejection of it. A response to faith, not a rejection of it. To me, this was an invitation to be more vulnerable, to step into my humanity, and to get to know the Lord better through this invitation, not a rejection of it. Yeah. 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 And, you know, looking back, we've had many conversations about the pathway that you were on when you're in seminary and and, uh, early in your priesthood. And, you know, you were someone who was fairly popular, who had a a professionally produced video on the mass that got really popular on YouTube. And also who had access to Catholics that many respect, that people see as spiritual and professional leaders in the church. So let's kind of go back. So you are discerning going to seminary. I think you're in early, mid-20s. And we talked about you were, you were living in the Emmaus house. You got connected with Father Benedict Grishel, who, you know, anyone who's in that Catholic world would know and respect and see as kind of one of the key spiritual leaders himself, a professional psychologist. And he refers you to see Philip Mango, who himself is a psychologist, very popular in New York Catholic circles, I think recommended often by leaders in the Archdiocese, by the Sisters for Life. He was a speaker for the Catholic Medical Association, for the Catholic Match Conference. Mm-hmm. He's been recommended uh, by CatholicSpeakers.com, uh, a former community, community superior for the CFRs and judicial vicar for the Archdiocese of New York. So he's, um, and and he, I think he was even a visiting professor for the JP2 Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family. So, you know, very, very big deal Catholic psychologist. And so you go to see him mm-hmm. and maybe let's just start out. Could you just talk about the experience of going to therapy with Philip Mango? Right. Yeah. So... I'll set the scene a little bit, take one step back. Um, I, I, initially, I was very interested in joining the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal. And um, I knew a lot of people in that order. Um, I was friends with them socially. I went to a lot of their events, and they were—they very much captured my imagination. Um, so I actually prepared to join their order. And I, as part of that consideration, I had to undergo a psychological assessment. And that was at the hands of Father Benedict Rochelle. And now that I'm a licensed uh, mental health professional, I I remember some of the tests that we took were certainly certainly part of the the normal, um, what's the word I'm looking for, the the normal test procedures. Um, But it was also, he was in a lot of pain, a lot of physical pain. Mm -hmm. And it was was unusual, the testing at the time. Mm -hmm. But regardless, um, he decided that I should wait a year. And he said there were some, some issues there. And part of the issue was um, I had a learning disability that was showing up from childhood in the testing. And I didn't tell him about that because I had forgotten about it. So I told him about it later. Um, but secondly, I'm very open with, I am in recovery from uh, alcoholism. So that was, I had just started, stopped drinking recently when I did that evaluation. And so he gave me two reasons that I was not able to join the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal. 
number one for alcoholism and number two uh, because I was gay. Those were the two reasons that he gave. And um, the he had two solutions, one of which was very helpful. He advised me to join Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and that began a long process of one of my favorite communities on the planet. It is still a community of mine. I have 11 years of sobriety. Um, some of my de- dearest friends, and that has provided a spirituality for me and a support group all across the world. And for that, that's why I'm not angry with Father Benedict, because he gave me that that gift. And I'm so grateful for that. The other solution in regards to the gay issue is that he said I should see Dr. Philip Mango. And so Dr. Mango had an office in Mid, uh, Midtown, Manhattan. He charged, I forget the exact fee, but a, a healthy fee, uh, over 100. I forget the exact number. I'm thinking 120, 130 is what's my memory, but... I'm not, I'm not positive. And it was a little office in, in New York, and I was so excited that I was finally going to get fixed and or have someone understand. So um, working with Dr. Mango was quite an interesting experience um, and had many significant negative aspects of that experience. Um, I don't paint him out to be a monster. I don't think he's a monster. I don't, I don't hate him. Um, I've worked through my resentments with him. But I do think his approach... And his methods of therapy were extremely destructive to me and to many other people. And the fact that he gained the trust and the admiration of the hierarchy and of the Catholic culture of the tri-state area is utterly amazing. And uh, let me let me let me choose a different word is utterly reprehensible. Mm-hmm. The fact that he was giving a platform. So um, he engaged in what I would call now a kind of smorgasbord of therapeutic tactics, some of which are pop psychology, some of which seem to be evidence-based. Um, he certainly would present himself as kind and warm and supportive. Um, but immediately after telling him I was gay, he seemed to get that confused with gender identity. And he would talk a lot about my masculinity, something that I never really questioned or was concerned about. I simply was attracted to people of the same sex. Um, I had no concerns with my masculine identity. Um, I never remember wanting to be a girl. I never remember presenting or a female. I never remember presenting with gender dysphoria. And yet that was always a big thing. <clears throat> so immediately after I told him he was gay, he he had a whole um, agenda that I was never loved by my father and that I had a lot of repair work to do with my father, which anyone knows who knows my father and my family would know that's, that is uh, preposterous. We have a very close family. We have a great relationship. Um, he said, even in addition to your father, you had no male role models. I have tons of older brothers, cousins, uncles who I dearly love and who I get along with. So his whole narrative was was completely untrue of my life. He said, let me guess, you were probably friends with the girls, bad at sports. I played multiple <laughs> yeah. sports growing up. Yeah, I had yeah you're like with, a conventionally manly I'm, dude. Yeah, <laughs> right. Very conventionally mass yeah. presenting, as yeah. they say. Um, yeah. I loved uh, high adrenaline, high risk sports. I, I played basketball, football, baseball. So I mean, played everything. So none of the narratives were true. None of the narratives were true. And so, but this guy was the expert. Um, he was also a little odd. He would go on, he would go on tangents that were seemingly almost delusional. So can I give an example of one of those oh, tangents? Yeah. Um, I gave an example of where I had some conflict and he goes, let me give you an example. And he kind of talked like a, a New York City mobster character from a movie you know so i mean here's my memory he's like you know i'm going to give you an example and he is part of this warrior brothers like saint michael warrior brothers or something and he goes me and my brothers were praying outside of a porn shop for it to be shut down and he goes and the the mob 
usually controls the porn shop. So he's like, they pulled up in the car and they said, what are you doing? And he says, I got to do what I got to do. And the guys will say, well, I got to do what I got to do. And he goes, they were threatened. It was the Holy It was Mary. Cause I was praying the rosary. He goes, it was the power of Mary, the power of Christ that was threatening their institution. End story. And so I remember being in a patient of being like, what does that, like, what does that have to do with anything? You know? And so he would often go on these big tirades that had um, a, a very like magical feel to them. Um, and I just was left puzzled by that. Like, what does that have to do with anything? anything? Um, and, and I think some of my other experience, he, he certainly was unprofessional in other ways. He would get a little sleepy. He fell asleep a few times. He would doze off. Um, I would, I would get the statements like my bills, like after I would, I would pay in cash and then I would get statements a little delayed. Um, none of that would super bother me. I'm very understanding in the sense that if he just saw five people in a row and he gets a little sleepy, that's, that's no big deal. Um, but still kind of, the whole situation was puzzling. But is it, okay. But, but you are a, a licensed social worker. If you fall asleep in a session, is that a big deal to you? Absolutely. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. That would, that would be. To me, that's a major deal. What I would say if I did that, I would say, hey, to, to my patient, I would say, you know, obviously you could tell I'm, I'm a little sleepy. I, I wonder, let's talk about that and see how you feel about that and what ways we can adjust here. And, and I would probably refund, <laughs> refund them the hour or two, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Don Eden and, and Rod Dreher had both written out experiences seeing Philip Mango. I think Dreher had written about being yelled at by him and just saying how the sessions were just utterly bizarre. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and after he'd written about it public, I think others had reached out about their experiences with Mango as well because he was just so promoted in, in Catholic culture. Yes. One other example is I went, I sat down one day and, and, um, he started berating me and he's the girls don't like you you're ugly and i i had a sense that it was part of a, a skit that he was doing but there was no informed consent no intro um and he was saying all these negative things and i just said i'm sorry you feel that way you know and and then he stopped and he said do you know what that is and i said no he goes that's psychological warfare that was the term i have that in my journal and he goes that's something he goes if you can withstand that for me, he goes, you know, that's going to build your confidence in the world to withstand um, psychological warfare. But it, just the term psychological warfare is, it, it's very, um, it's a puzzling term that he would use that. And I, w- I could never imagine myself using any technique anywhere associated with that. But even if I'm being sarcastic with clients or using humor, I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to pause and use some humor just to, and give them informed consent. Or I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to be sarcastic just to make a point. I always tell my clients what I'm going to do. So the fact that I just sat down and he began to berate me um, in that way was odd and puzzling. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. As someone who's done a lot of therapy and who also is, is really interested in professional ethics, you know, what you're describing to me is just utterly bizarre. I think yeah. if I had uh, a friend or someone I knew who had gone to someone who engaged in those types of practices, I would probably recommend that they report them. Right. And, you know, but, but again, you know, this isn't just some random person. This is someone that, you know, Father Grishel recommended to you that, exactly. that, I mean, basically the entire um, diocese and much of the Catholic Church recommended to you as, as a vulnerable person seeking help. Yep. Yeah. Um, about a year later, he was invited to speak by the Archdiocese of Newark Men's Conference, which had well over a thousand people. 
And I mean, he was the keynote speaker. So in my mind, I'm like, not only, you know, Father Benedict Rochelle, but I mean, major dioceses are 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 hosting him as keynote. Yeah. Yeah. And I think actually not long after you had seen him, I think was when his license had gotten suspended. So I I looked it up and his license was suspended. I think he was on on probation for a couple of years for disclosing confidential client information without their consent. Right. And one, one other funny, you know, odd thing is I remember he said, you have a lot of repair work to do with your father. And at that time I was very willing. And I said, you know, I think my father would be open to that and maybe maybe him and I could sit down and maybe this would enhance our relationship although I, like I really don't know what to repair yeah. but I'm willing and I remember calling my mom and I said I think I'm going to do some repair work with that and she's very supportive of these journeys and she said oh okay I mean you know no relationship is ever perfect but what repair do you think you have to do and I'm like well just the tension that was there and she's like oh what tension and I'm like I, I don't know and she's like she was like, this, this seems a little, a little odd. And I, in my mind, I'm like, well, she just doesn't get it. And then she goes, if I can just suggest, I don't want to get in, in the middle of your personal therapy, but maybe, maybe have some more co- um, coherence about what you want to repair. Cause I'm sure dad is open to it. I, but if you come in vague, it's not going to be helpful. So the next week I went back and said, Hey, I just want to like narrow down some of the repair work I have to do. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, that's not what I was talking about. You're fine with your dad. I was like, oh, okay. But I mean, in my mind, I was about to call and make a, have an, like a meeting with him and kind of go through all these ways that well, I was never affirmed that, by a male. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that can really harm a relationship all the while for next week, the following week, to say that's actually not the case. Yeah, yeah. You know, and we, it's very we, odd. We've talked other times about, yeah, your experience of seeing Phil Mango, and that's not surprising. You'd shared other stories with me about how he would say one thing one week and the opposite thing another week, and which is very inconsistent generally. Yes, yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the repair work thing is really interesting. You know, so I've uh, previously had uh, Chris Dowling, I had a conversation with him about seeing Bob Schutz, and that was part of the narrative as well. And uh, and and the same thing with Scott Hare discussing his experience seeing Joseph Nicolosi. Uh, you know, all three of, of these Catholic psychologists have been committed to this narrative that if you're homosexual, it comes from experiencing this wound early in childhood. And so if you have um, homosexual desires, then what we need to do is explore what needs to be repaired from earlier in life. And they just they commit to this narrative and and what it often amounts to is gaslighting to where you you yes. start to believe that I must have these experiences even though you can't recall anything that really seems to line up and right. and you're kind of forced to believe an alternative reality right so absolutely it's like the investigative aspect where I need to figure out where this wound came from so I'm going and I remember I had a bad dream as a kid and it involved some guy Um, I think it was like my brother's friend or something. He was in the dream and I must be, and I remember thinking like, oh, maybe he abused me, right? No evidence. I never was even alone with this guy, but because he was in a dream, I was, you know, you're all, it's like the smoking gun. You're searching for the data. So at one point I remember coming to a realization that the whole like father wound thing, this can't be the case. I have no questions about my masculine identity. I just like other guys, (laughs) like this can't be the case. So I remember um, being at the People Can Change weekend, which is where Dr. Mango sent me. We can come back to that. But I remember them saying there, oh, it seems like it's a, it was a peer wound, not a, a father wound. I mean, and what middle school or high school, you know, isn't somewhat insecure or jealous of one of their male friends, or maybe they get bullied. And I remember coming up with a whole scenario. I remember being in eighth grade, and I was very much my personality. I like to move on to the next thing. 
So in eighth grade, I remember being excited for high school. And sometimes my friends and classmates annoyed me. That's the extent of it. And I remember thinking one night I was invited to a Halloween party and I didn't go because they were annoying me. And I remember at that weekend, I remember thinking that I was not invited to the Halloween party by my male peers. And that was the source of the wound. Mm. And I remember going back to journals and being like, that that wasn't even what happened. I, I just was annoyed that night. I was probably irritable, 14 years old, being grumpy and like, I don't feel like going. And I probably just hung out at home or with other people. And so in this attempt, this desperate attempt to search for a cause, I was like, oh, I must have experienced peer rejection. Meanwhile, I'm on every sport team. I have friends. I have, again, the confidence all around. And I did other things other than sports, too. I did music stuff. I mean, I just, it just doesn't track at all. The story does not track. Yeah, yeah. And we definitely, we'll, we'll come back to some of the experiences yeah. earlier in life in your Catholic school and, and you know, harms that, that were experienced there. But one of the things that always strikes me is people who are committed to this view of, oh, okay, we have same-sex desires. And so you must have some kind of insecurity in a relationship with your father, or you must have had some insecurity related to high school. And I just think about that. And I'm like, well, yeah, but who doesn't, right? You right. Know, if you're, right. If you're a, a male growing up in society today, it means you've experienced some level of insecurity related to your parents or your father or your peers. That's, that's just kind of part of, of growing up in the world. Right. Right. But, but people who aren't gay aren't pushed to scrutinize their lives in that way, right? right. So it's this thing that's really just a universal experience, but we are told that it means something about yep. us that no one else gets. Yeah. And, and one, one funny anecdote to prove that I, I've always admired uh, rock climbers. I just, they're fit, they're adventurous, they take risks. I've always found rock climbers to be attractive. I just think it's a good look. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, oh, it's because I'm a bigger guy or I'm stocky or husky or whatever. And the, the narrative would be, oh, you're jealous of that. And therefore mm. you want that for yourself. Mm. And I said, you know, I could be with my straight friends at the climbing gym and they think the climber guy is hot too. Like it's not, you know, it's not this issue of like, oh, I'm wounded. Like that's a normal thing. Like, of course they're hot. They're like an Olympic athlete. Like, yeah. of course they're good looking, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing I always think about too, is just these theories are not, they, they're not rooted in some Catholic thinker. They're rooted in Neo-Freudian theorists. This, right. This, these pathological narratives about the origins of same-sex desires are not, you know, they're, they're rooted in the same group of professionals who said that religious belief arises from pathology, mm. right? Um, and actually the narratives are, are quite similar. It's you have these insecurities and so you're seeking for security in this thing and that's what brings about religious belief. Yeah. Um, but you know, we don't we don't talk about that because Catholics like to have an, a negative narrative when it comes to same sex desires, and and they just pretend that these same narratives related to religion from the psychological profession just didn't exist or something, or they're completely unrelated. Right. right. Yeah. So okay. So let's. So you also mentioned when you were doing the assessment with Father Rochelle, there were certain things that were unusual about it or that now as a as a mental health professional you recognize are not quite right you know what do you recall there i would say generally speaking it was just the, he was in a tremendous amount of physical pain um he needed the assistance of one of the brothers to which to me breaks confidentiality he was taking notes on a loose leaf piece of paper and um they're just 
I don't think anything egregious or drastic. It just seemed so casual. Like I felt like I was in his living room and um, he did the Rorschach, for example, and he thought I had brain damage. But it was later I gave him my psych testing from when I was a kid with my dysgraphia learning disability. And he, and he said, this explains everything. So even that kind of thing, I'm like, well, I, I might have thought about this. If, so if, just if we fast forward for one second, when I went to the, the seminary in the Archdiocese in Newark, they had a full like, like a, a secular psychologist do it. And it was a whole different experience. I mean, I sat down at a desk. He was in a suit. He, he went through like line by line, the confidentiality. I mean, he, he put my papers in a, in a locked cabinet at the end. It just felt so much more professional. With Father Benedict, it felt like I was in there for spiritual direction or something. And he had miscellaneous things written down, and he was kind of going from one thing to the next. And I just remember thinking this feels more like spiritual direction with a mentor than a, a, a psych exam. Yeah, I mean, so so you you know you kind of describe this as, as not really being a big deal, but one bringing in another person who's not a professional, who doesn't, who it's not clear whether they're bound to confidentiality to participate in this assessment, that's a really big deal, right? And then also diagnosing you with brain damage based off of a Rorschach test, yeah. Rorschach. I mean, I think. You know, malpractice is a big deal, whether you do yeah. it nice in a nice way or a mean way. That's a huge deal. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And, and the, the, the brother wasn't in there the whole time, but he was in and out and get, bringing him medicine, bringing him a drink. But I saw the look of pain on Father Benedict's face. I mean, he had a back condition at the time. Mm. Immense pain. Like he at one point he moved, just adjusted in the seat a little bit and just utter, utter grimace on his face. Like he, And he goes, I'm sorry. Pardon me. I need a minute. I'm really... So, I mean, just just his age and his physical ability, um, he also told me I was overweight and I need to lose weight. He said I have a potential hypomanic diagnosis, which which is not true. I mean, he, he just said I'm very impulsive. And he goes, he goes, you need to do AA, you need to be less impulsive, you need to lose weight, and you need to come back in a year. That was his, those were his recommendations. <laughs> so when we think about the state of the church and the reason why we have psychological assessments because we are concerned about the health of our priests and, and we mm -hmm. want to take it seriously. What you are telling me is communicating to me that the CFRs actually don't take it that seriously, right? right? They have someone who himself is not in a condition to be able to do these assessments, who's providing misdiagnoses based on the assessment, who's violating confidentiality obligations that you would have for an actual professional. I mean, I hear this and I'm like, this is kind of a joke. Yeah, it is. It, it very much felt, it, it felt less of a joke to me. It felt very much in-house. It was like, we need to keep all of this in-house. And I think the Friars have a, a history of, not, of mistrusting outside resources. Um, the Friars, I love and respect them. And they operate in, in many ways in a very cultish way. For example, they, until recently, they were very restrictive on who they would allow in for spiritual direction. They were restrictive and they were cautious of outside counselors and therapists. They, they very much were insular for a long period of time. I do want to be fair and say I think that has changed a lot over the years with their more recent leadership, and that's really a, a great sign. Um, but the fact that they would keep that in-house, I mean, it's not, it's not hard just to contract with a local psychologist. I mean, I had health insurance. I could get that covered by my insurance. This is not rocket science here. The fact that they kept that in-house was very, um, very telling. And when I, when I asked about the gay thing, I said, is that, is that an impediment? He goes, not totally, but he goes, we are going to have to tell Father Bernard, who was the community servant, which means a leader, and he said, and I quote, 
and his blood will freeze in his veins, end quote. Hmm. And I just was left sitting there like, why? Why, why is his blood going to freeze? Why do I have to tell them as if this is some, you know, terminal diagnosis or something? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and it's interesting that it's not necessarily an impediment, but it's something that's going to cause like outrage, right? Yes. yes. That sounds, inc- it sounds like it's putting you in an incredibly confused position. Right. Right. And immediately like the subsequent line of questioning of him and other people in those days was immediately like, well, are you looking at porn? Are you looking at this? And it it, it was always very interrogative, right? It was always, it was always as if you said, you know, uh, it's, it's almost by way of analogy. If if I had, if I said, I have a gun in my backpack, are are you going to shoot it? Are you feeling violent? Like immediately it's sinister. And I remember when I would tell these people, they're like, well, are you chased? Are you celibate? Are you looking at porn? Like there was this immediately this, this interrogation that ensued and, I can't imagine if a guy was like, hey, you know, by the way, I'm straight. Like, well, what does that mean? Are you looking at porn or you haven't? Like, I don't, it, it just seemed like so, so causal, causal by its nature. Yeah, especially if the goal is to behave in a way that's chaste. And, um, you know, it's interesting to immediately jump to needing to double check on that list. Yeah. So, okay, so... You know, I, I hear these things. This is the initial assessment for when you're right. being considered. Yep. And and then the subsequent psychological help when they right. decide that you need help. And I just think, I, I think about the story, I think about the guy at that time, and I think, wow, that guy is totally being set up for failure. Right, right. 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 Absolutely. Yeah, but you do, but you eventually, so you don't pursue the CFRs. You eventually go to dialysis seminary, is that right? Yeah, so so kind of what happened, I started working with Dr. Mango, and I ended up getting a job at the Archdiocese in Newark, because I was living in Newark at the time. And um, I got a job as a layperson in their chancery office doing communications, and I just loved it. I loved the job. It was interesting. I saw different aspects of the church. Uh, my boss was a very pastoral, uh, my boss was not a priest, but he was very pastoral and he, he knew I was interested in, in religious life and he would assign me a lot of things that were liturgical that we had to be at, you know, and he, he was great. I really enjoyed working with him. So, and here I am working in a chancery of a bunch of, uh, officials from the Archdiocese of Norris and I really liked it. I got to know some, you know, I would eat lunch with the diocesan priests and I was like, you know, they're pretty cool too. I like them too. I, I very much had an idealized version of the CFRs. I thought they were like the Gandalf, you know, the Dumbledore of the religious world. And I remember thinking like, well, if I join them, I can just play my guitar and play Frisbee and go for hikes. And, you know, obviously there's more to it than that. I mean, when I was for, when I was young, I thought that. Um, but then working in the archdiocese, I, the idea of a, of a diocesan vocation began to grow in my heart. And that was simultaneously as I was doing my work with Dr. Uh, with Phil Mango. And, um, and that's when I asked my local parish pastor, I said, you know, I, I want to live in an environment that's a little bit more prayerful because I am discerning, but I want to join the friars and I'm doing this whole sober thing. And he said, have you ever heard of the Emmaus house in Newark? And he, sh- he connected me with the vocation director. And the Emmaus house was a house where people, guys could live for about a year while they discerned seminary, but had some, some other reason that were holding them up. The majority of them were learning English. It was mostly... Um, men from different countries that were learning English. And so I moved into the Emmaus house. The vocation director, by the way, is on my list of, of, of earthly saints. I, um, I'll keep his name 
private just just out of respect for his confidentiality but he was immensely christ-like to me immensely supportive i did come out to him when i lived there and i just said is this a problem and and he his answer resonates with me today and he said um this is one part of who you are and that your goal and discernment is to integrate all the parts of who you are with the call for celibacy and he goes as long as you're talking to your spiritual director and talking to your, you know, your the people who were in charge of your formation, and seeking that, to integrate that into who you are and who you want to be as a disciple, he goes. I see no reason that it's an impediment, you know. And that seemed like a really sober, reasonable answer to me. Danny speaks fondly of that time, but as you know, that's not the end of his story. In the next part, Danny and I will talk about his experiences as a priest, the prevalence of homosexuality in the priesthood. The challenge of the clerical closet, his coming out, and more. Thanks for listening.